A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and this week we revisit perhaps my all-time favourite interview for the Barbican. I'm not sure I ever thought I'd find myself on a taxi ride and musical journey with one of the most fascinating modern composers, Philip Glass. But that's what happened back in late 2012. I found out that Marty uh, didn't mind my being around. In fact, when I was in the editing room, which is almost every day, he would launch into into discussions about film and film history and we were t- looking at a, 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 a part of the film and he said okay this is going to have to go and, he, and I said oh Marty that's one of my favorite pieces in the, in the movie he said in every film you will have to take the scene you like best and cut it out the composer there talking about having to kill your darlings cutting out the things you most love with Marty also known as Martin Scorsese Philip Glass is arguably one of the most influential composers of the 20th and 21st century. His music can be heard everywhere, from a grand opera house to all manner and sizes of concert halls. From the 12-inch vinyl of dance music to adverts or underscoring the drama of film, such as his breakthrough score to The Truman Show. Mike, the big news is that Meryl will be leaving Truman in an upcoming episode, and a new romantic interest will be introduced. Uh Uh-huh. I'm determined the television's first on-air conception will still take place. Well, another television milestone straight ahead. You heard it here first. It has been a singular honor and a pleasure, sir. Christoph, thank you. Thank you, Mike. He reached the age of 75 in 2012, and at the time of this interview was just bringing his groundbreaking opera Einstein on the Beach to the Barbican Theatre. On December the 14th of that year, he produced a live music screening of his 1982 score to the film Koyana Skatsi, and on the following night, a birthday concert at the Union Chapel in Islington, playing with his ensemble. So I managed to catch up with the composer, no mean task for someone who never stops working, on a short taxi ride across London. This was made a little more poignant as Philip Glass spent the late 60s and early 70s working as a New York taxi driver. You're at the moment, you're just coming up to the, the performance of, at the Barbican of uh, Einstein on the Beach. Um, how's it going? Well, every time we go into a theatre, we have to make adjustments. That I, Einstein is kind of an, a very idealised piece that will look a little different from place to place, but it, it always is the same. It's a very demanding piece in, in the best of circumstances, and the circumstances are helped a lot when everybody is there, is trying to make it happen and make it work. So uh, I'm feeling very good about it. I've been twice in this theatre, and it's for me personally, when I walked in the theatre... And I, I had a memory of it, but I didn't have the physical memory of it that I had when I walked in. I saw it. I said, oh, I know this place. And I remembered 
particular images from other works that I had here and how they look there. And, and from the point of view of the artist, it's a beautiful theater. One, two, three, four, a busy year this year it's obviously it's your 75th year what are you up to you just traveling around the world and and, and performing oh, oh yes <laughs> i'm doing that too but i'm also i've for a long time i've made a practice of writing when i'm traveling i find it a very good place i find hotels and like in here at the barbican i've asked uh for a dressing room with a piano and i've got one so i get up in the morning have breakfast and i go to my studio and then I can leave and, and see whatever rehearsals are taking place and so forth. And so I'm also writing music this year. And uh, there are several big projects. One, of course, is uh, going to be coming to the, you know, that'll be the perfect American. That's the opera about uh, the death of Walt Disney. Uh, so I'm writing that. Actually, part of it is being written here. Uh, and I'm doing another, I'm doing some other pieces. But my regular writing schedule pretty much is intact. And I have the traveling uh, with the ensemble playing with them, doing solo concerts and also duet concerts with other uh, musicians, and um, and then doing the birthday party stuff. That's what we're doing. kind of feeling on looking back the library that the ensemble uses the active part of the library goes back to 1969 there's a piece uh, a piece from 70 69 70 to 74 music in 12 parts we do that regularly so music from the 70s 80s 90s is uh, played as in a routine way i uh, i don't restrict myself to just new pieces i try to do new pieces on programs uh, but uh, there may be only one or two new pieces and uh, so i'm always reviewing the old music I'm, I'm playing it and uh we're learning to play it i think better than we used to i think uh, the performance practices of this music took some time to uh, to settle down to and it, uh, right at this point now for example einstein the uh, ensemble plays extremely well now this is work which we've been playing rehearsing and playing since 1975 so uh, and many of them are the same players, but we didn't play it nearly as well 35 years ago, 40 years ago. And, and, no, it's much, we're playing it much better now. Uh, so that there are several aspects of, of keeping a lifetime of music alive and available. It means that we have, we, we're, we're constantly going like and playing it. Our approach to it is changing uh, as uh, new music comes up. Uh, 
another thing, I'm very much involved with uh, the technological world in terms of this is music that where sounds are programmed for synthesizers and uh, the actual pa- sound packages that are put together for playing the music. Uh, that's also changing so that we're just now, in fact, going through a whole revision of uh, how the music is, pre- is uh, prepared for technically. We have two systems right now, one for the Einstein touring, and we have another system for concerts. And we're trying to get down to one system. It's not that easy, actually. <laughs> Besides that, uh, I'm doing concerts that may include, like if I'm doing violin piano concerts, uh, it's very common these days to amplify almost everything, even if it's only an ambient kind of uh, what they call reinforcement. Uh, it's very common to do that. People are used to it. Basically, uh, working with us, this ensemble in the way that I do, I've been um, constantly over the years, this, I've never been very far away from the early work, and it's been brought up to the technical levels of, of what we're doing today. How do I feel about, to get back to your question, I feel very fortunate to be able to do it. One thing you were sort of mentioned there, and I think shouldn't be taken for granted as well, is that you're one of the composers who obviously has that very a very near connection to his work in the sense that you're always performing it or being part of it. Even if you're handing it over to other people, you still got that personal connection. Well, I do, and this partly because I'm also the publisher, so that uh, the actual use of the music goes through me as well. I mean, it's not there's not a third party that does things that I don't know about, which can often happen to composers. I, friends of mine who have publication arrangements with other other persons, other companies, uh, they may not be able to to freely comment, intervene with public performances because it's not in their hands anymore. That's just not the case with, with me. I'm able to do that. That also means that when an opera is being produced, uh, I can expect to hear singers. Uh, I'm expected to and I expect to. I have one of the agreements, one of my publishing agreements is that I have two tickets for every performance of everything every night. Not that I can go, of course I can't go, but uh, but I, if I want to go, I, there's no problem of that kind. And uh, I have an active uh, relationship with with companies uh, like with Barbican, we work with, uh, I work with uh, Pomegranate Arts. I'm also here and available as you see. One other thing that I find quite fascinating is the fact that you've got Orange Mountain Music, which is a record label which is dedicated to releasing your music. So not only do you publish it, but there's there's a specific record company for that purpose. Yes, and not only that, we're uh, actually able to go back 
and um, we can either buy back or make arrangements to republish other recordings that other companies have had and maybe don't produce anymore. Uh, some companies that have, very often, they, they would uh, records can be dropped from a catalog. My records, whenever, they're, whenever possible, I reacquire them. So that uh, the company is only 10 years old now, but we have 75 titles. We do about 10 a year, and in fact, we're a year behind. We're, we're preparing more records than we're actually able to produce in any one year. So this is an, an interesting body of work all by itself, because these are recorded performances that were made, not all by me, but sometimes by other people. Sometimes uh, I heard a, uh, oh, there was a young group from Iceland, that, and they sent me a recording of Music with Changing Parts, which I had agreed I let them do. And it was so good that we called them up and asked them if we could put out the record. And we did. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So it's not always just me. Very strange things happen. Some, I'm, I'm usually very open to having arrangements done because I'm very used to seeing it done to other composers, whether it's from Bach to Debussy, everybody. There are arrangements of all kinds of music. And maybe during the lifetime of the composer, it might not happen very much. But as soon as the music is available, people begin to make arrangements. So I, instead of putting a moratorium on it, when people ask to do arrangements, I always agree. It doesn't mean that the arrangements are guaranteed to be good, but the good ones will survive, and the ones that aren't so good will, will, won't survive anyway. But we got a very curious request from a steel band to play a, to make a recording of the Atos for Piano. And I was so, I said, my, in principle, I agree that they could do it, 
but I was a little alarmed by the idea. But in the end, I decided the principal uh, had to be to be held. So I I gave them the permission to record it, and then they sent me the recording. It was done by my own company, and、uh, I didn't listen to it for months. It was sitting on my desk, and I said, "Finally, I put it on and listened to it, and it's really good." It was really. I said, "Oh my God, this is really." It doesn't sound like piano music at all. It sounds like steel drum music. I mean, it, it's got a definitely an island sound to it. I mean, you can't you can't miss it. So th- funny things can happen like that. There are always there's a harpist or a flutist who wants to do a violin concerto and they make arrangements, and you know I, I find that there's no harm done in any of that. I'm not a, I'm not at all a purist、uh, in, with anybody's work, let alone my own. The currency of music to me is can travel easily、uh, from place to place and from、uh, musical perspectives from one to another.、Uh, we've seen that. The music of Bach is all around us in every form that you can imagine. It's not hurt his reputation. We're talking about having your own record label, but you. You grew up in、um, your, your dad had a record shop, so yes. Well,、uh, that happened very early. But I also was、uh, going. I was at music school before. I ended up working for my for my dad. But I I also was in music school when I was eight or nine years old. I didn't start actually working in the store till I was twelve. They considered that we were too, my brother and I would be too young to have been there before that. But we were working from the age of twelve, and by the age of fifteen, I was a record buyer. I was the classical record buyer for the store, and I made. Some terrible mistakes, but my dad—he was very kind about it. He let me find my way, and、uh, sometimes my enthusiasms misled me in, in certain ways. I remember the famous story of the Schoenberg Quartets that were all recorded by the Juilliard Quartet in the early '50s, and they came out as a box set on CBS, as I remember. And、uh, I was so thrilled to see that in the catalog. I ordered—I think I ordered six sets of them. Now this is Baltimore, which isn't a big town anyway, and and not many followers of Schoenberg at that time were in Baltimore. And, and when the records turned up at the store two weeks later, we that was always a great moment because you see when you order the records, you never saw the covers. You know, it was just the name, but we were always wanted to see what it looked like, and we thought we read the, you know, the copy on the back of the records and all that. My dad and myself and my brother, we all we, those were great treats for us. So the day came, and the Schoenbergs, we called them the Schoenbergs because they became a big liability. Well, the Schoenbergs showed up one day. I said, "My God!" He said, "What? What did you do?" I said. And I said, "These are." I said, "Ben, we used to call my father by by his name." I said, "Ben." These are masterpieces of 20th century music, and said these are really important pieces. And my father, not that he said, he said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll keep them, I'll put them in the shelf here, and when you've sold the last one, tell me. <laughs> so that, I was about 15 at the time, and I think it was around 19. But it was five years later. I had gone to university, and I was now at Juilliard, and I come down to Baltimore now and then. And、whenever I was in there, I would go and look at this, see how the Schoenbergs were doing. And finally, they were gone, and I, 
And I, I was very excited. I was a bit older than I what is, said, Ben, guess what? The Schoenbergs are gone. <laughs> and he said, yep. He said, they're gone. He said, and uh, did you learn the lesson? And I said, what's the lesson? <laughs> uh, the lesson was, he said, I can sell anything if I have enough time. Of course, the other lesson was is that for five years, uh, that space was taken up. He, I was paying. We were, he was paying rent for records that he couldn't sell. Well, he finally sold them. Anyway, so a lot of funny things happened in the store. Uh, my brother and I, at one point, in one summer when we were very young, to keep us off the streets, as it were, we were given a, a storefront, and we were given our own records and a, and a record player. And we spent the summer mostly listening to music and maybe selling a few records here and there, mostly R and B. Uh, I got to know the classical repertoire very well, long before I really played it. Though I was a flutist and later a pianist, but a lot of the uh, a lot of that music I really wouldn't have known if I hadn't been in there. And uh, uh, not only that, but I knew who the great interpreters were. I, I knew all the conductors and what they were good at, and what, and I understood the power of interpretation from going from one to the other. They were all there. I could listen to everything. But another important thing that I saw for sure every day that I was working in the store and there were a lot of days until I finally was gone and off to school and living in other cities a very simple thing would happen someone would come to the counter they would give my father five dollars and give them a record uh, by the way there was five dollars in other words the, the, the prices of records and what we're talking about 50 years ago it's, it's, only, it's, it's virtually the same if you go by the normal way things go those records would be selling for $50 a day not 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 8 or 9 or 10 or 12 anyway I always thought the music business was a very interesting business so I started my own re first record company when I was 30 I had a second one well, maybe 10 years later and then this is the third one I'm on right now uh, I knew how to start a record company I knew everything about it I knew how to make the covers I knew how to number the, everything uh, I, at the same time that I was at the Peabody learning to play flute and, and theory and percussion and then piano and uh, I was also at the store working uh, in the music in the the music business I remember years and years later I was talking to uh, Ornette Coleman about uh, I don't know what you're talking about we, we knew each other we've known each other a long time and uh, one day he said to me he said don't forget Philip the music world and the music business are not the same thing of course I knew that <laughs> uh, He, I, I had the feeling that he discovered it but I, I knew it in a different way.
I'm interested to pick up on that and maybe go a little bit further. I think a lot of people have come to know your music through film. Everything from The Truman Show to, to Candyman to, to, I think, a big important, important one for me, and I know a lot of the people, was The Hours. Is that something that you've, you've enjoyed? Yes, very much so. Uh, we have to remember that uh, the popular art form of the 19th century was opera. The popular art form of the 20th century was film. Uh, they share a lot of things. One is that, uh, and I, I began as an opera composer and didn't take up film writing until I was in my 50s. I began writing symphonies about the same time. I was writing operas when I was in my 30s. Uh, so I had a long background of that. I would say that uh, I, I always saw film as a popular art form, but I thought that, I thought the opera was a popular art form too. Uh, and again, you can see, as, as what I've been telling you, I never thought anything wrong was, was wrong with it. I thought that was just fine. And I, I wrote pieces that I knew some were more difficult than others, and some would be popular and some wouldn't be. For me, it was always, uh, the issue was mostly about quality. It wasn't about genre. You know, that uh, it's still possible to, to write a beautiful film score and to make a beautiful film, even though it's a, a more crass commercial enterprise. It's hard to imagine than filmmaking. It's really sometimes right in the gutter. I mean, uh, at the same time, in that environment, you can still do beautiful work. Uh, it's partly discipline and luck and, uh, and perseverance, and it can be discouraging. Sometimes, some, but I remember talking to Morty Scorsese about this once. He, he said an unforgettable thing to be said. He was editing the film, and I was working with him and Thelma Schoonmacher at the time. I was writing the score. I had written a lot of it already, but I, I found out that Morty uh, didn't mind my being around. In fact, when I was in the editing room, which is almost every day, he would launch into, into discussions about film and film history and as we are, here's one of the great film history. He knows everything about film. We were t- looking at a, 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 a part of the film, and he said, okay, this is going to have to go. And, he, and I said, oh, Marty, that's one of my favorite pieces in the, in the movie. He said, in every film, you will have to take the scene you like best and cut it out. It will end up on the floor. That, he said that as a simple fact. And uh, that is a different kind of discipline that I was used to. I had never heard that before. He was used to it. And uh, filmmakers do, do work that way. I learned a lot from art. I learned a lot from film people. I learned a lot from... Uh, the other person I learned a lot from was Woody Allen. I did a film with him, too. The more experienced the filmmaker, the older they are, the more films they've made, the, the easier it is to work with them because they're so sure of themselves. Uh, the young ones who or in their first or second film, they're so insecure, they simply torture everybody inside. You know, When they know what they're doing, they'll leave you alone, and, and you can do your best work then.
in the Scarlet Sea. Is, is that an important film for you? Oh, yes. Let's put it this way. Uh, I did the when Garfield and I made the movie. I had no idea if anybody would ever see it. By by luck and chance and good luck, I would guess uh, uh, Francis uh, Coppola saw the film and he said he would like to help us. And he put his name on it. it says Francis Ford Coppola presents. Garfield, see, that's actually what he did. Didn't do anything else. That's all he had to do. On the basis of that, it went to the New York Film Festival and and became overnight a, a kind of a sensation. About three months after that. And it opened the New York Film Festival, I think, in 1981, at the at the Radio City Music Hall, which is a 5,000-seat theater, and it was filmed. Two or three months later, I got a call from Garfield. He said, by the way, Kanye uh, Scassi is, is going to be broadcast tonight on PBS. That's our public television. And uh, I said, oh, well, what does that mean? He said, it means that probably six million people will see it tonight. Well, I almost fainted. I mean, that's a number, six million, that anyone in the the business of concert music is not even able to comprehend. I mean, all the people in the, who would ever would ever hear any of my music in any concerts for the rest of my life would never come close to that number. <laughs> and it was going to happen in one night. And I, that's when I understood, oh, this is a popular art form. This means that it goes out everywhere. It's not a question of peeping of a selective audience. And what was it important to me? It was very important. I didn't write the music for that reason. I didn't even know about it. Uh, it happened to uh, connect to people in, in that way. Uh, partly, I think, because of uh, the vision that Godfrey has. Is so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a unique and profound and, and exp- most expansive one. I had the good fortune to work with him, and the music seemed to work with the movie, and it's become part of the film. I mean, that's just the way it is. There, there are... Uh, they're tied together forever as far as I can tell. Have you got anything that you want for your 75th birthday? What is there any present that you could get? I'd, I'd like a few days off. One of the most magical but surreal interviews I've had the pleasure of capturing for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed that brief but satisfying glimpse and journey into the composer's life around his 75th birthday. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. The series is here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 